Welcome back to your favorite contracts podcast. I'm Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, and I'm with Dave Hoffman from the University of Pennsylvania. Today we're talking about Jacob and Youngs versus Kent. The question we have is whether Justice Cardozo will deliver George Kent from this land of broken promises. Let's get started. Right. It's it, it's really much more natural to read it as Jacobs and Young as opposed to Jacob and Young's. Or, yeah, it's a problem. Um, while teaching this case, I have forced myself to identify who the parties are such that I can actually refer to them by name. Yeah. Kent is the rich guy. Kent is the rich guy, right? He is the homeowner. Yes. 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 I've seen a picture of this mansion, and it's really quite something. It's lovely. It's a real mansion. Um, in fact, in the Penn archives, there's all kinds of uh, amazing sort of photos of it being built and its architectural drawings. Um, I think that the, uh, for whatever reason, maybe the architect was a Penn grad. Um, oh, and okay. yeah. All right. So let's do a quick case recap. So we, everyone's on the same page. Perfect. Um, so Kent is a rich guy. Uh, he wants to build kind of like a, a country manor uh, for himself. Um, and we are in the, the, the early 1910s. Um, uh, he, the construction work, like many large scale construction projects, there's all kinds of different, um, specifications in the contract about what the manor has to look like, what kind of materials they want to use, um, including notably that the plumbing has to have, has to be from Reading pipe. Um, and there's all kinds of back and forth about why that's, the specification in the contract. It might be that Reading Pipe is a brand that is better wrought iron pipe than maybe average pipe on the market. Um, but in the particular case that we have in front of us, turns out um, the people putting the pipe in don't actually put in Reading Pipe. They put in a substantially identical pipe that's not branded Reading. The um, the work. Um, uh, uh, had gone on for quite a period of time. Lots of pipe had been laid in the house. It it seems as if this was an inadvertent mistake by the contractor, who is, uh, I guess, Jacob and Youngs. Um, and the architect at some point is asked, hey, will you certify the house? Will you certify that um, everything was done right? And the architect says, no, because this pipe has not been put in correctly. The contractor says look in order the pipe is behind plaster walls in order to fix this you know mistake which is basically um, in order to replace the unbranded pipe with uh, uh, with the reading pipe I think it's coho pipe uh, with reading pipe we have to essentially kind of tear down the house because you can't um, uh, do the work otherwise and that would be insane because there's no functional difference it's not going to rust more quickly. It's not going to leak more readily. It's crazy to imagine tearing down the heist house to replace the reading pipe with, uh, I'm sorry, the, the non-reading pipe with reading pipe. So the contractor refuses. And the um, contractor then, and, and so the, and the homeowner says, well, you can refuse, but I'm not going to pay you what I owe you on the remainder of the contract, which isn't actually that much money. It's like $3,500, which of course today is a lot more, but um, we're not going to pay you the remaining like 8% due on the contract. Uh, and the contractor says, yes, you are. Uh, and the homeowner says, I I'm not going to because you didn't fulfill a condition on me paying you everything I owe. And so eventually it, it comes before the New York Supreme Court, which is the New York Court of Appeals, the, the sort of the highest court in, in, in New York State. And, and Justice Cardozo, Judge Cardozo then, he eventually becomes a justice. Judge Cardozo writes this opinion, which is in every single contracts casebook in the country, is one of the sort of the major cases that distinguish lawyers from non-lawyers, that all lawyers have read this case and have sort of an opinion about it. And is amazing in every single direction, including for its writing, which is, I'm not sure how, how would you describe the, the writing? Um, I would describe it as postmodern. <laughs> it's not, it's not postmodern. It's, it's 
not Foucault. I mean, it's close. It is close. It is. <laughs> it, I would say it's Faulkner. Faulkner. Yes, probably postmodernism might be Faulkner. Yeah, that, that. Gothic? Gothic. 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 Sorry, that's what I, I was like. I was, listen, I was not an English major. Um, isn't, isn't like Rococo the right? <laughs> isn't oh. Rococo where, what's the thing where like the, the mirrors have all that like fake plaster gilding? Isn't that Rococo? Wait, speaking of, speaking of plaster, though, I just looked up an important fact that I can't yeah. believe I haven't realized all these years. There, this case concerns a dispute that arises in 1914-15. Yeah. Drywall was invented in 1916, which strikes me as a key invention for people who are thinking about removing walls in order to get the pipes out. Have you ever yep. owned a house that was made with plaster and lath? Yes. It is wild. Totally different world. Totally different world. Yes. We had a house that literally had, the, so it's plaster over, over lath, it was like the thin pieces of wood. And sometimes, for reasons that are, I, I do not know, there's actually horse hair also being used to bind the plaster lath situation. Mm -hmm. So it's really, you don't just pull out a big sheet of drywall and then replace it. You have to crumble a whole wall yep no it's no joke it's no joke so you want to describe it as gothic the writing is something um i know that your move on the writing is you put up slides with the writing uh, my move on the writing is i make students say the writing out loud but the writing is part of the case in a pretty deep level to try to understand part of it is like it's so baroque that it you know i think students read it and the struggle is real like to understand what it says. And because you struggle so hard, often the case takes on this bigger importance maybe that it actually has because by the time you spend hours trying to understand what he actually said, you think to yourself, surely that was time well spent because why else would I have spent so much time understanding what, you know, you know, a deviation so trivial or, you know, all the rest of this, this stuff that rolls off the tongue. Um, all right, so uh, do you want to sort of set up the legal issue and then maybe we can talk a, a little bit about what we think about the actual resolution before we get to the, yeah. the, magic, the magical mystery tour that is Cardozo's writing? Well, okay, right. So, so, I, so there's, there are two legal issues, right? There's two questions the case is deciding, right? Which is one is whether or not, um, whether or not Jacob and Young's failure to install the right pipe relieves Kent of his obligation to pay the last installment on the house. So that's yes. a question. That's a question about materiality, right? Something like materiality. They, they're going to talk about it in terms of the independence or the dependence of the promises. Yes. The other question is once you have decided to stop thinking about this as a condition per se, and started to think about the nature of the breach. It just started to think about sorry, what the damages are for the breach, for installing the wrong pipe, whether or not the remedy is the cost of fixing the pipe problem, or whether the remedy is the diminution in value of the house with the non-preferred pipe. Yep. One of the reasons that this case is tough for students and for me is because those issues are kind of squished into the same writing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Okay. So the, so the first issue, if we want to think about it, like what's the nature of the failure by, maybe that's the whole thing. Like what's the nature of the failure? And so, so Kent's view is the thing that you, the, the, the reading pipe is a condition. And by the time we're at this point in the course, you know, students know the whole point of a condition is if it's not satisfied, the counterperformance is excused. And so Kent's like, look, not having the pipe is excuses my obligation. And Cardozo sort of through like a real feat of using a lot of words says, you might've thought it was a condition for all kinds of reasons, including that, you know, it may be said it was, and it's exactly the kind of thing that conditions are made of, like small trivial details that are, um, that are, that are, are specific in this particular way. And, and, and obviously, because we're, as we're going to see on the back end, it's going to be hard to find damages 
for this difference. This is exactly the kind of thing you'd want to have a condition about. Credo says it's not really a condition. It's really just a promise. And how does he end up concluding that it's, it's one versus the other? He says, you know, that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, and um, consider, and so this is the, the, the kind of the, the, the lovely part of the opinion. He says, considerations partly of justice and partly of presumable intention are to tell us whether this or that promise shall be placed in one class or another. And so students read that, they're like, oh my God, those words, what does that possibly mean? And he's basically like, look, trying to figure out what this is, is it something that should excuse obligation or is it something that's going to be kind of squishy? It's partly about what the parties want and partly about what's fair. And somewhere between those two things is the answer. Uh, so the, the interesting thing about this question about what the parties intend and what's fair is that obviously those two things have to be related, right? They can't be, I mean, what contracts are about is fairness that is based on what people have agreed to. So yeah. it is, so it's a little funny to have those two things be separate and you have this interesting, so, so let me read, let me read to you from our, um, in an accent, in an accent, <laughs> I, use your, use your strongest me accent. Okay. No. All right. So from the here's the thing. Just to be clear, the main accent is very much like the um, the what I've always imagined to be what Cardozo would sound like in 1910. The main accent. Yeah, the main accent is sort of like a the residuum of what the old Northeast accent looked like, sounded like. Can I ask if you've ever been to Maine? No. <laughs> okay. Great. Moving right along. <laughs> That is what I thought. All right. From, okay, so this is, now this is Cardozo. In, in a Maine accent, in the sense that I am from Maine, and I'm yes. speaking. Okay. Yes. From the conclusion that promises may not be treated as dependent to the extent of their uttermost minutia, without a sacrifice of justice, the progress is a short one to the conclusion that they may not be so treated without a perversion of intention. Intention oh, oh. not otherwise revealed may be presumed. Oh, oh, do, no, do, this, do this part slowly. This is the best part. Okay. Intention not otherwise revealed may be presumed to hold in contemplation the reasonable and probable. What? Exactly. Okay. Is this right? So, so let's, first of all, let's just say what we think this means. I think this means that in his view, if you don't express your intention, you're a reasonable person. Like that, that, that the, the, the default idea is that you are going to behave in a normal way. In Cardozo's world, we're all just sort of like, you know, gentlemen, trying to do the right thing, trying to get to the right answer in a common sensey way, kind of bargaining together over, a, you know, a nice sherry or whatever one drinks if you're an older gentleman, gentleman. in 1910. Okay. Yeah. If you're a landed gentleman who's like had a pretty good life, it's all kind of worked out. I mean, it's pretty interesting though, right? Because it's actually not obvious that that's, I mean, that's sort of reasonable according to who. If you're building a mansion and you're being, and you're specifying, and you have articulated that you're pretty particular, which in Kent has, I don't know why we should, like, why, why, I don't know why there's some reasonable person involved here. Well, because he says, there'd be no assumption of a purpose to visit venial faults with oppressive retribution. He sort of has this idea like, look, if you're going to be weird and if you're going to be the kind of person who insists upon every you know, jot and tittle, who is going to be vindictive in your approach toward contracts, we want to know it yeah, in the most yeah. specific possible way. And you know, it's a real perspective on law. It's you know, for, for Holmes, the there's sort of a view like the law should be the approach of the law should be imagine what the worst person's going to do and make the laws sort of confine that person's scope of potential conduct for Cardozo. The idea is imagine what a normal, reasonable, thoughtful person would do and have the law conform to that perspective. And 
that this opinion, I mean, one of the reasons why the opinion is great and why it sort of has staying power, even though it, it like has no practical relevance at all, is it has a sort of a philosophy about how to think about commercial interactions, which is probably not wrong. Like the, the idea that most of the time people would not want to tear down the house in order to vindicate this sort of immaterial difference in pipe quality it is not crazy. And the idea that like the law should insist that if you're going to be terrible, you need to be explicitly terrible is a really intuitive idea and one that like makes the law look good. Well, what do you do about the fact that this, that Kent was explicitly terrible? I don't know. No, I mean, I, I, that's why the, the opinion is infuriating and amazing at the same time. So Kent, as we all know, you know, does say, I want this special pipe. And there's a special provision in the contract that says, if anything's not right, you have to tear it out of your own expense. And the question always, like, I, I'm sure there's been, you know, this case has been taught for, for literally 80 years. I mean, 100 years, right? Yeah. 100 years. The idea, I mean, so there's been 100 years of law professors who have said, what else could he have said? Do I really, really mean it? You know, for a hundred years, that question has been echoing in Socratic classrooms. And the answer is like, I think the answer has to be Cardozo doesn't really mean that you can say it. He yeah. says it. He says that you could be explicit, but he doesn't really mean it. Well, so, well, okay. So how do you feel about the following? How do you feel about the possibility that, Car that Cardozo does think you can say it and mean it, but you only get to pick a couple things? Oh yeah. So you can't. So so one of the things that's interesting about this case is that it's a it's a construction case, which which right. he is our which which Cardozo is himself explicit about. He says, if I may, the margin of departure within the range of normal expectation upon a sale of common chattels stuff will vary from the margin to be expected upon a contract for the construction of a mansion or a skyscraper. And why is that? Would you say? Because What's there's that? too much, there's, because there's too many details in the construction of a skyscraper. Some of them have, by, by the law of large numbers, some of them have got to get, be gotten wrong. And so in this way, this kind of harkens back to his, his view in Lucy the Lady Duff, in the wood versus Lucy the Lady Duff. So in that case, you have basically one party's totally at the mercy of the other. I mean, weirdly, it's her who's at the mercy, yeah. I mean, yeah. allegedly, yeah. of this guy who's going to go out and sell her brand. And, and, and Cardoza says, yeah, we wouldn't really imagine, though, that anyone would have entered into a contract where one party was totally at the mercy of the other. We're yeah. going to imply an obligation based on the facts that we have to sort of try to understand they seem like they're at each other's mercy, but we're not going to allow that to be. And so here... If, if you were building a skyscraper and if you had to get every single thing correct, yep. since you're not going to get everything correct, what that means is that the person who's contracting with you always has the opportunity to, play, to behave opportunistically with respect to your counterperformance and say, gosh, you did 99 of those light bulbs perfectly, but one of them was unscrewed. Bam, I don't owe you anything. Yep. And so what Cardozo is really about in this case and in Lucy the Lady Duff is to try to reduce the opportunities for one party to sort of have like total domination and control over the other Yep. to have the use the force of the state to like hammer your counterparty. And, and cause the, I think the intuition probably is look, most people don't behave badly, but they, and they only do if they have power outside in the world. So Kent is rich, has power in this community and is able because he has access to lawyers in the way that the, probably the, the you know, ordinarily the counterparties wouldn't he's able to try to like take his world power and try to bring it to the courts and Cardozo's like that's not we can't live with that that's not going to work out yes but it wouldn't mean i think so th so there's an interesting example at the end of the sorry uh, to interrupt myself the it, there's an interesting example at the at the end of the case um in which Cardozo says look if you if you built a foundation of your house out of granite from vermont instead of New Hampshire or New Hampshire instead of Vermont, you wouldn't have, we wouldn't remove, you wouldn't tear the whole house down. Which is an interesting example in part because I actually find it more intuitive to think about the cases in which you would. Because one can imagine that there might be cases in which what you are doing is something 
specific to your specific set with sort of sentimental value. And you might say, listen, the thing I care about the most in this house is that I want it to hearken to my New Hampshire roots. I would never say that. Um, because you don't have New Hampshire roots. I don't have New Hampshire roots. And Maine and right. New Hampshire are natural um, uh, rivals. Enemies. And yeah, obviously. Yep. Yeah, we're natural rivals. So I actually yeah. have like real, you know, disdain for their granite. Yep, I totally um, understand. But Maine's not part of this, so I don't have it. I don't pick a team to Vermont, New Hampshire. The, it strikes me as being the case that actually you can contract to have the whole deal fall apart if you choose the wrong granite. If what you are doing is building a shrine to your home state. So the thing that's hard about the cases, the, for, I mean, there are a lot of amazing things. One of them is, is Cardozo saying you can do that, but you have to disclose your reasons? Right. You have to say, well, look, I have this particular condition. And the reason I have a condition like this is because I love New Hampshire, or in this case, I love Reading Pipe. Not because it's economically sensible, but because- I'm from Reading. Like, because why? I'm from Reading. From Reading. I was going to say something much more embarrassing, which was sort of like, I just, the status of this pipe is such that like, when I shower, I think to myself, I've made it. You know, like I've got that song saying that like, looks like I've made it. I finally am showering with fancy pipe. And the idea, I mean, it, it's not that insane to imagine. I mean, like people buy branded products all the time that have the same functional characteristics as non-branded products. Usually they do so to display them. Right. Like Usually a Prada ham, a Prada handbag versus not a Prada handbag, even though it's the same thing. But but sometimes like the display is just for ourselves. Sometimes we engage in like self presentation. Like we're we're, you know, we we have this thing. It's just like our own secret, our own secret like status that we have, and it's not crazy. I mean, it, it's crazy, but it's not, it's not inhuman. I'm just trying. You, to you're a psychologist. You must have some sort of like psychological word for the thing where you have a secret reading pipe that makes you feel statusy when you shower? <laughs> uh, I will have to think about whether that's actually a phenomenon with its own term. There's always a term in psychology. It must yeah, be. True, it's true. Anchoring it's bias. Sort of like a halo. Sort of halo a ha effect. Anchoring halo effect. It's yep. just hard to, it's just that, but I do think it's very hard to imagine a case in which the plumbing is the thing that gets you, the, gets you there. Um, I, I'm trying to think about other cases um, where this would be, where, where something behind the walls. Um, and I have to say the only ones I've come up with are the ones that are, um, that are sentimental. I, I have not gotten there with the status, um, status plumbing, status electric, status... I mean, so uh, here, here's another way to think about it. What if it wasn't, so one way to think about it is it's, it's a sentimental. The other way to think about it is it's like a brown M&M. Okay, yeah, right. Well, okay, wait. And so I was actually just going to ask you this question. If it is, if it is a brown M&M, which you can maybe explain to the uh, listeners, um, do you view Kent's objection as being in bad faith? All right, let me first explain Brahman and M&M. So back in the day, people used to go to, to concerts and they congregated together. Seems weird. And when they, they do, there, there were things called bands that appeared in front of the concert. Fine. There was a pretty famous touring band. This is not going to be on my strength. Who was the famous touring band? Who did this? Um, Van Halen? Apparently that's a band. I have no idea if that's actually true. So I think, really I think it, it, it is true. I mean, I've looked it up so many times, but I've forgotten it so many times. So basically, their, their concert writer, the, the, when they went on tour, they had a, a contract that said, with respect to the management company that was setting up their concert at, at every different place, here's like 9,000 things we want you to do. And one of the things on the very last page was, by the way, there need to be no brown M&Ms in the snack bowl in our dressing rooms. And people thought to themselves, why would you do that? Like, that seems, I mean, brown M&Ms taste just like the rest of the M&Ms, except they're brown. I mean, was it because of cancer? And so there was a whole, like, set of urban myths about, like, maybe brown M&Ms or red M&Ms are more likely to cause cancer. Turns out, no. The answer was they were just trying to find in, the rare, in a relevant detail 
that they could easily check on the theory that, look, if they got this right, they would have gotten a lot of other things that are harder to check right, like is the electric set up right? Yeah. Or do they make sure that they grounded all the wires? And if they got this wrong, they were unlikely to get the other things wrong. They were unlikely to get the other things right. And so maybe that's what the writing pipe is. It, it sort of is a function. It's a brown M&M. It's sort of like a, a very easily observable thing that makes it so that the harder to observe things, like, for example, how good is the plastering work? Is it going to last for five years? Right. I mean, there's lots of stuff in the house when you do new construction, you won't observe right away. And it's really hard to know, you know, did they effectively tape over the seams before they painted over them? Well, you won't know that until the house starts to move and then you're going to look and the seams are going to come out in like three or four years. And so is that what this is? And the problem is it's, it's tough to assert your Brown M&M argument after the works are done. Like that's a, that's a tough moment to do it because now you know, you're supposed to assert that argument earlier. And so you could sort of stop all this investment by the counterparty. It feels a little bit like they're instead they're using the Brown M&M after they know that the concert's gone on well. Like the concert was great. There were no problems in front of the audience and they get right. back to the dressing room and they're like, God damn it, there's no Brown M&Ms. We're not going to pay. That's the wrong moment to use your canary in the coal mine. I'm sorry, now I'm mixing every that's single really, Yeah, that's a, that's a real... It's terrible. Yeah, it's well, you can't kill the canary after the mine has already been closed or something. <laughs> okay, that's also not how that metaphor works. But yes. <laughs> Wait, so which way do you come out? Do you say, yes, this is, a, this is basically a bad faith yeah. argument? Or, I mean, so, so sorry. The other way, uh, let me just try to rehabilitate the, the claim from Kent. That's... Yeah. Just a minute, before, because we've just done a lot. Either there's a sentimentality argument and it's hard for us to understand it, or it's a Brown and M&M argument and we think it's a badly placed argument. So now you're going to rehabilitate one or the other. I'm going to rehabilitate the latter argument that says on the, that on the Brown and M&M argument, basically, and say maybe that's, maybe this is um, to, to use your preferred method of contract interpretation, rough justice. Half maybe, Maybe what this actually is, is a way of saying not, I'm going to check and make sure that you grounded the wires so that I can stop this whole process, you know, in, in, uh, with enough time. Rather, it's, I'm going to go ahead and say, since you messed this up, you probably messed some other stuff up too. So let me just take back, let me just claw back about 5% of the, of the, of what I owe you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and why does Cardozo end up rejecting that? There's no evidence. No? Yeah. There's no evidence that there's anything wrong with the, with the construction. There's, there's no evidence that there's anything wrong with anything. Um, yeah. And the mistake that they made is a, yeah, they're, okay, there's not, there's, okay, there's, there's brown M&Ms in the M&M bowl, but it, it, it's, a, it's not a mistake that has, and that, that suggests a disregard for the sort of safety or integrity or whatever of the house yeah. overall. So there's two big limitations on the case that I think students sometimes miss. The yeah. first one is it can't be a big economic difference. You can have these trivial differences, but if there was a big economic difference, then Cardozo says you would get to a different result. It would be, a, it would be more of a condition. It would be something that would, would, would and, and this is something that's related to the material breach doctrine. So the idea is if, if you have a failure of a performance that is so substantial it does excuse the other party's obligation to continue their, their counter performance. And so here the idea is, and this is going to get to the damages part of the question. It's just, it's just trivial. But if, if it was, if it was non-trivial, if it was material, we get a different answer. And the second is you can't be willful about it. If you are the contractor, you can't say to yourself, I am putting in this non-conforming stuff on purpose. Um, because I'm evil or because I want to. It has to be It has to be an accident. Now, those are two important limitations. It's unclear how seriously to take them. Yeah. Um, because it, as you are learning in torts, you know, the difference between willfulness and like, um, and negligence is sort of like a little bit about a, a, you know, how much care you take. And so you can choose not to check. And right. that's another way of, of doing something by accident. Yep. Um, and yet sometimes courts are going to say, yeah, sometimes choosing not to check is reckless. Yep. 
Um, and so it's unclear whether this is that particular scenario. And, and of course, the question of whether or not it, it matters, it could have real sentimental, unique value to a particular person, even if it doesn't matter to the market. And so on past exams, I once had sort of a, a water barrier. Um, so the, the parties were, were building a new kitchen. And as a part of building the kitchen, they dug out the floor. And the contract required a particular water barrier to keep the, the kitchen dry. And it turns out this water barrier was unbeknownst to the contractor, but, but known to the, the homeowner. This water barrier stopped a particular species of mold, of mold spore that the homeowner was allergic to. Mm. No one else in the world was allergic to that, that mold spore. And the contractor put in a, a water barrier that stopped all other mold spores, but not this particular one. And, and, and so there you have something that has no economic value, no sentimental value, but real value to the homeowner. And the question is, do you have to dig out the house to replace the, the water barrier that has that destroys the value of the construction for the homeowner, but not to anyone else. And I, I made the question hard by saying that the homeowner had put up when they were when the contractor and the homeowner were talking about this particular contract, the homeowner had on their kitchen table a allergy, a bottle of allergy medication that was specific for the kind of allergy that they had. But of course, they didn't talk about it because it's weird to talk about medicine that happens to be out at a kitchen table when you're talking about the construction of a new kitchen. And so, but the but the but the contractor saw that there was an allergy bottle, but didn't didn't investigate further. And so, you know, this is how you can end up playing with the case: is it willful? Is it economic? Is it sentimental? Is it important? These are all things to think about. And what Cardozo says about this drives students nuts. I mean, it drives students nuts how uncertain this sort of line drawing exercise is. He says something to those students. He says, those who think more of symmetry and logic and the development of legal rules than the practical adaptation to the attainment of just result are going to be troubled by a classification where the lines of division are so wavering and blurred. I mean, that's... going to like what I'm about to do. You're not going to like it, says Cardozo. I know you're not going to like it. Yep. Um, Something and, doubtless and, may be said on the score of consistency and certainty in favor of a stricter standard. I mean, the students find this case hard, I think, in part because, I mean, depending on where it comes in the course, right. the earlier it comes, the harder they find it, in part because it's such a hard case, but, but in part because the, the, they're like, wait, but you get to contract for what you want to contract for. And the answer is kind of like, and his answer basically is, no, you don't. No, you don't. And then he says the meanest thing that anyone has ever said. He says, he says, the decisions in this state commit us to the liberal view, which is making its way nowadays to jurisdictions slow to welcome it. And what he's kind of saying there is like progress, the arc of progress is, is going in the direction of this result. And only fuddly dudleys, only people who want to live in the past would want an answer. And so when law students read this case, they're like, they're all, they have all these intuitions. Intuition one is I want to be the kind of person who articulates just results. Intuition two is God, I would like there to be an answer. And intuition three is I want to be on the right side of history. I don't want to pick, I don't want to pick the old rule. I want to pick the modern rule, the progressive rule, the rule that is where things are going today. Now, just note the case is now a hundred years old and we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> there is this sort of real the rhetoric of the case really puts you in a position that if you don't accept it, you're basically saying, yeah, I'd really like, I'd really like the old system. And that's a hard thing, I think, for students to, to really argue for. Whatever their ideological persuasion, everyone wants to be with the modern rule. And with the trend. Everyone wants to be on trend. Can I ask why... One of the things I find hard about this case is that I, I, I don't know why the condition question has to matter so much. <laughs> yeah. Right? So one of the things you're, you know, so, so one of the things is sort of like, look, as Cardozo is saying, look, if this were a big deal, yeah, fine. We'll call it a condition. But if this were a big deal, how about we don't call it a condition and just estimate damages? Right. Right. Like, and, yep. And now we're in the back half of your question, which is like, what would damages look like? And it turns out it's the exact same question. 
do you get cost of completion or do you get diminution in value? So the students who are in our class ha had that earlier in the semester and now it comes back again. Yep. Earlier in the semester we had PV House, yep. which is this exact problem. And it turns out cost of completion versus diminution of value is also about questions of presumable intention and questions of justice. Exactly. What do we think expectation looks like? And it's going to be sort of recursive because if it turns out that you think that expectation looks like cost of completion, then you go back to the sort of conditions question and you're comparing two different numbers. One right. of the reasons that this case is, is when this case is set up to have a question basically be, is Kent going to get $3,000 or is he going to get $0? Right. If he was going to get cost of completion, the question might be, is he going to get $3,000 or is he going to get $10,000? Right, cost right. of completion might make the whole th right, and and of course, if he's going to get cost of completion, then it probably we're in a world that Cardozo would say also, okay, it's a condition. Right. Yeah. So the two questions feel separate because they're from part different parts of the course, but they end up being basically like one question at some level. Like, what do you owe your counterparty? What is the expectation of the bargain, and how would we know, and how? And how much are we going to defer to what you say, as opposed to what we think you should be believing after the fact? But it's not just about what you owe your counter. I mean, so sorry, I agree with everything you just said. But it's but there's also it's also about what remedies are going to be available from the court, yep. and what remedies you can help yourself to. Right. Right. Because the three thousand dollars. Am I getting that number right? Some three thousand. Yeah, three thousand dollars. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. Thirty-four. Thirty-five hundred dollars. That's a remedy that Kent helps himself to. Right. Right. There's another world in which he just pays and they, and they litigate and then you're just in and then sort of the condition that becomes irrelevant, essentially. Right. Yeah. The condition only matters because of this self-help remedy where he says, we don't need to go to court, but I'm just going to take back the last five percent, the, the, the last five percent that I owe you because and that's how we're going to call even. And Jacob Young's like, wait, what? No, you're not. Right. Um, I mean, that one thing that's another thing that's hard about the case is that it has so little in some ways it has no traveling power to other kinds of contracts so bank contracts financial contracts you can have conditional insistence yeah. upon the smallest thing which is the brown and marx case which we're you know in yeah. the case book that immediately follows um and even in the contracting example almost all contraction contracts go basically like go to arbitration because they have arbitrators who, and they have bonds, like construction bonds, with, with um, payment terms that um, specifically permit you to uh, pay less if there's been a failure of particular pieces. Yep. And so the practical relevance of this case is like negligible, but the idea of the case gets moved from the conditions and the cost of completion context to the, the substantial performance material breach contract, which is you don't always get what you want. Yep. And we're going to permit trivial failures of contractual counterperformance all of the time. And we're going to permit them because we just don't want to permit opportunism. I mean, that's, I think, what the bottom line is. Well, you can think about this case as being in some, in some ways a part of uh, the liquidated damages cases and the specific performance cases and the court just saying like, actually we will limit their available remedies based on what we think is sort of an overreach of contract of, of your, you're trying to use contract to overreach. Yeah. And the answer is no. You right. Don't and so, yeah. yeah, I mean, ex you know, exactly. So like in some ways that the case is practically irrelevant In other ways it's, a, it's a, exactly the heart of the course, yep. which is, you know, what is the, what do you have to give up when you go to court to get your contracts enforced? And what, what Cardozo says, you have to give up on the idea that you're going to get exactly what you bargained for. If you are using that power in ways that feel to us, to like old card, old man Cardozo, you know. He's still young with, here. He's, no, he's not. I mean, he's, he's, yeah, he's not, he's not, he's not that young. I mean, so I think he's. I think he's probably in his 60s, but maybe he's in his 50s. But this is pre-Supreme Court. It's pre-Supreme Court, but it's 19... Oh, you're okay. right. Okay, sorry, he's 50. So, he's 50. So, to Cardozo, with all of his social snobbery, all of his 
all the things that you get when you go to court. You get a judge who doesn't understand you and is not of you. If you want to take that system on hand, you have to take the consequence, which is you don't get to have the liquidated damages terms you don't you want. You don't get the 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 contract conditions you want necessarily. You don't get the damages you want necessarily. But what do you get? You get the state power that stands behind the contract. And so the case is really about the bargain that you make when you when you interface with the court system. You thought you had one contract, but the contract you have with your counterparty is different from the contract you get enforced in court. And that's sort of like a, a feature, not a bug, of what adjudication is. Do, do you think that Cardozo, so, sorry, so do you think that Cardozo also believes himself to be making a sort of economic argument here? So do you, I view this in part as a pro-contract decision that says we can't have this. No one's making, no, Jacob and Young's are not building any more houses if they're on the hook for this. It's not worth it. I mean, some days I think that, right? So some days I think, well, I'm not sure if today's a day. I think some days I would say, so contracts that are, that are enforced to, to every letter are too expensive. Everyone would be afraid of them. And, and because they would be afraid of them, they would spend too much time like in the negotiation process fussing with things because they'd be terrified of every single promise they made being actually enforced. On the other hand, maybe the Kents of the world are also worth thinking about. You know, it's hard to walk around and defend like people building a vacation home who want to exploit contractors. But there's many of us, I'm not one of them because I'm definitely a satisficer, not a maximizer. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are many people out there who really want what they want, you know, who send back the order at the restaurant when we used to go to restaurants because you know, the thing wasn't exactly perfect. And for those people, and I think we all know some of them, for those people, decisions like this are like pretty offensive. And they might walk around worried that the contracts that they write are not the contracts they're going to get. And so the question of whether this case is like pro-contract or not kind of turns on your view about whether the world is full of more satisficers or more maximizers. And as a satisficer, I feel pretty good with just sort of thinking, eh, it's probably close to like 50-50. But the maximizers among you, we might want to actually know what the actual number is. You know, who really cares about getting exactly what they want and who doesn't? You're a satisficer, I think. Yeah, oh, for sure. The, I mean, the maximizers, who understands those people? It's, I mean, no, although I believe that the literature suggests that most of us are maximizers for certain things. I'm going to explain what these, what this concept is for listeners. So there is um, basically, there is a, a, a two ways that one might think about approaching a decision or a choice, a a choice. One is one says you, you have some threshold after which you're, you're fine with the thing that, so you satisfy, which means all you do is you basically find the, the first thing that crosses the threshold and you, and then you take that thing and you move on. The other is a maximizer, which says that you are focused on getting the best version of the particular thing. So um, you might think that um, for, if I was gonna buy a flight for a work trip, I have some, I may have a threshold that says basically, I'm going to just choose the, a flight that's under some budgeted amount on the airline that I get miles with and leaves and leaves between the hours of 8 a.m. and 10 p.m. And then I just take the first one I see. Or you can imagine that's that's satisficing. I see a flight, it's on whatever, it's you know, it's leaving from Philadelphia at 9 a.m., bam, good to go. Or you could be a maximizer and be looking, be sort of combing through for the cheapest possible option with the best possible seat, with the most miles that you could possibly get, et cetera. Right. Most people, for its worth, are maximizers for certain things 
and satisficers for a lot of things, in part because you don't have, most people don't have time to be maximizers for every single choice. And Cardozo's view, I mean, it's very much akin to this. Cardozo is sort of like, most people are satisficers, but if you want to be a maximizer, you really got to flag, fly that flag high. And you You don't get to be a maximizer for every single thing. I think that's also just a, that's also the court. I mean, it's a pretty interesting, what he says basically is you can be super fussy about your delivery of, I don't know, widgets. Let's think of a real thing. Wheel bearings. Good. Great. Sure. Yes, great. You can so if you ordered a hundred wheel, <laughs> you know what? Forget wheel bearings. We're going for wheel wheelbarrows. Wheelbarrow. Yes. Great. You order. That's, that's a machine I can understand. It's got three wheels. <laughs> no one. Anyway. Yes. Okay. You can be super fussy about your delivery of wheelbarrows, right? They all have three wheels. They all have the right number of wheels. <laughs> it's actually possible they only have one wheel and then two stationary parts but my point is you can get the exact thing that you want because we know there's a limited there's a we, we can actually name all the different ways you can sit down in half an hour name all the different ways that you might get the wheelbarrow delivery wrong and say listen don't get any of the, these things wrong but when you're building a mansion or a skyscraper you actually can't there's actually just exponentially more ways for the contractor to go wrong and there will be some ways that, that, that the contractor will go wrong. So, I mean, your question is, do I think that he's trying to maximize, is Cardozo trying to help contracts by trying to fit contracts with what his theory of human nature is? And I mean, yes. I mean, does he think that this results net-net in like cheaper contracting costs makes it easier to want to go into interim contract? Yeah, I do think that. I guess having taught this case for so many years and having so many students be like pretty morally offended by the result, I just, I think part of it is I am like, it's true that people are sometimes maximizers and sometimes satisficers, but I am very far on the end of satisficing in almost everything I do. And I believe that part of my intuitions about this case track my general view about the world, which is like, come on, like, let's just get through the day. But but you, but you have to admit that there's there isn't asymmetry here in terms of what's at stake, right? Like, I, and I say this as realizing I myself am all, as am also a satisficer. I would just be like, yeah, fine, yeah, right. The but there isn't asymmetry here because what's at stake for um, Jacob and Youngs is the is is money, is the right. money he was gonna a lot of money, probably yeah. the profit, right? Let's imagine right. something like the profit is at stake. The profit. Though. Yep. Whereas what's at stake for for Kent is sort of utility. Yes. Right? Some like non, non-monetary, non, non-economic utility, which I- Priceless, right. Yes. Let's hope no actual economists listen to this and want to tell me about how utility is always commensurate, et cetera. But right, but so, but so the concern, there, there is a, there's an asymmetric concern about whether who's being encouraged to contract because the contractor is vulnerable in a way that the homeowner is not. Not getting the thing you want is not you being put in a vulnerable position in this context. I, so I agree, of course. Although, let me just say one more counter thing. We probably should, should, should cut it down because how much time will students actually want to listen to Jacob and Young versus Kent? <laughs> uh, which is that the contractor is probably the repeat player here, though. Because it's unlikely you build more than one vacation house in your life. But contractor, it, it will be very... I mean, contractor is part of an association who probably gets a newsletter that's like new decisions about contract law. And they probably get a letter from their lawyer who they might even have. And if there was a bad choice here by the court, the contractor is much better able to respond to that bad, bad choice by changing what the contract says. Right. And, and so I agree with you that like the contractor has more economically at stake, but that cuts both ways. That also means that the contractor is very likely to be able to be um, flexible in response to the rules in which in, in, in ways that a homeowner might not. And, you know, I think lots of homeowners might think if I'm building my dream house, yeah, I put in some insane things because I dreamed my dream house. And in my dream, I had Reading pipe because I always thought that that's what it meant to be successful. Yeah. I finally made it. I finally made it. I am showering. I mean, the thing I've always thought is like, what if you had like, you know, you're there in the shower and there is, and there are in fact different brands. So there's Kohler, I guess. I mean, Kohler is the only thing kind of brand of pipe that we have in our house because it's the, 
contractor standard cheapest pipe, but I imagine that there probably are brands. And you might imagine, like, I am so snobby. I have paid money, yeah. more money, for a branded Prada pipe. <laughs> Behind that. I mean, I'm laughing, but of course I am. I, I do also know that we have, that there are any number of goods that we buy that are essentially credence goods. Specifically, this would have to do with food. I, you can imagine food and cosmetics. Yep. right where you buy something that's way more expensive than the available alternative because you have some set of beliefs beliefs that might not actually be particularly well founded that say i only eat organic organic um or i only use cosmetics from a super expensive cosmetics company because of a belief i have about the way that this improves my life right I think it's it, the amazing thing about the case is that it's really possible to like get pretty deep in the weeds and believe Ken's theory of the thing and be pretty angry at the same time to hold Cardozo's view in your mind and be like, what is going on? Who would tear down the house to take out piping? And the fact that people can hold both of those views at the same time so intensely and strongly is what makes the case still a great teaching case all these hundreds of years later. Even and, and, and at the same time, it's also great because it's impossible to read. Part about the case is like, this is what it means to be a lawyer is to sort of struggle with this nonsense and to come through it and be like, yeah, I know something you don't non-lawyers. <laughs> that is really never the line I have thought of. I have, I mean, that's not a lot. Yes. The, the transgressor whose default is unintentional and trivial may hope for mercy if he will offer atonement for his wrong. What course is this? It's an amazing. <laughs> I uh, hand this off to a different, different doctrinal area. Hope for mercy. All right. All right. Hope for mercy, indeed. That could be the name of this podcast series. Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> <I'll talk laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Dave. <laughs>